Hey, I'm Stevie Coleman. Hey, this is Michaela Brewster. Hi, I'm Kim Shaw. Hi, my name is Kalila Elliott, and you're listening to the Call and Response Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Call and Response Podcast with Felicia Fitzpatrick. And every week, I'm like, I'm so hyped. I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited. It's like a bit now, and we love it. Because guess what? It is true this week as well. I'm like... I, I, I look, I'm tripping over my words because I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I thought you'd do this to I, all your guests, Felicia. <laughs> well, I do get so excited and gush, but then I'm like, when I don't even know where to begin because I'm so excited, I'm like, oh, I'm in deep right now. So I'm trying to get together. <laughs> but I met this week's guest through uh, the Broadway industry. I, I forget who actually introduced us, but it's while she was working. Um, at Disney Theatrical Group, and she had put on this very cool tastemakers event for Aladdin. And so I got dressed in a teal dress and homage to Jasmine, and I was like ready to go. And then when I finally got to meet her, she was just so warm and bubbly and just brilliant. And and just you knew she was on her her game and she she knew what she was doing. Um, so I'm so excited to introduce Kalila Elliott, who is now a founder of her own company because she is so cool like that and chief disruptor at Gafford Communications. Hi, Kalila. Hi, Felicia. Nice to be here with you. And you know who it was? It was Corey. Corey connected us. Oh, Corey Steinfest. <laughs> yes. yes, I am so sorry. If he's listening, Corey, love you. <laughs> yes. I apologize. And reconnected yes, us again Indiana. afterwards. Yes, reconnected yes. us more recently. Yeah. Oh, Corey. Yes. Okay, so that is it. You are right. Um, and I'm so glad he did because, I I mean, you know, it's one of those things, too, like, especially in the theater admin space, like, when you hear of another Black person or you meet an, or you see him in the same room at an event, you're like, you connect. <laughs> it's like... You make the yeah, eyes. Yeah, it's that meme. You've seen that meme where it's like when you walk into a Broadway show and you see another Black person or another person of color and you instantly lock eyes and you're like, I'm just so yes. glad to see you. <laughs> it's that. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Except you were there exactly at a Tastemakers of Color event, so there were lots of us in the room. <laughs> Which is like, right, it doesn't happen often. Right, right. Um, and that's why I was so grateful to be invited and to experience that moment. And just to know that you were, you know, in the position that you were in, making change and, and you know, doing all these great things there. Um, so I'm so excited to hear about your journey and just, yeah, like, see, I'm fangirling. Like, all the cool things you have done. <laughs> oh, I really am. So I'm kind, like, Felicia, you're yeah. so kind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but before we get to the, the, the Disney part and, and all of the other exciting places that you have worked, um, I want to start off with how did you get involved in performing arts? Like, how did you initially discover it? Um, I think it discovered me. I mean, it's so interesting. Mm. I've kind of been a performer all my life. It just, when you're young and like a little kid, it just looks like a kid who's silly and always, you know, looking for attention and, you know, I, I all everything became a performance, right? Like I can remember being a little kid and my cousins and I staging shows. And thankfully we had a grandmother who would entertain us and let, you know, be our audience. So I, I can literally remember putting on shows in like kindergarten. Um, but in terms of wow. like, yeah, like in terms of when it first became formalized, um, I grew up in a very small town in Louisiana and there weren't like any professional theater companies or artistic programs that were like readily accessible to 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 me and so 
PBS was my entry point. Surprisingly, I always tell people I will always support PBS because that's how I came to fall in love with live theater. Actually, it was through PBS and Masterpiece Theater, interestingly enough. Um, but it was in high school. I was I joined the drama club and was and I took drama theater courses in high school. And my drama teacher, Cora DeBurr, shout out to Cora DeBurr, um, really fostered in me a love for the for the performing arts as a whole and actually made me think that it was a viable career option. So um, I would say high school is when it like really became real. Like locked in. Yeah, yeah, that was the question. I like I, I knew when I left high school that somehow, some way I was gonna be doing something related to arts and entertainment for sure. That's very cool. And I also love the PBS roots. Like I feel that. Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a good PBS girl. I mean, I, we could go down the line. I watched so <laughs> many episodes of Anna Green Gables over the week over the you know, the weekend when PBS would run their their fundraising right. marathons. I yeah, PBS is my friend. <laughs> Yes, I love that. I used to watch Arthur on there all the time too. See, now so you're great. showing our generational divide here, Felicia. Oh no, oh, <laughs> I grew no. up with Bye, Sesame Dad. Street, <laughs> and my my younger sister grew up with Barney. So, so you you're oh, the Arthur okay. generation. <laughs> I oh my gosh, I am. I mean, I I definitely Sesame Street and Barney were great too. But yeah, Arthur was. That was your pal. Was pal. <laughs> yeah, I, I watched yeah. Arthur with my nieces and nephews. <laughs> okay, okay. But look, we're still connected. Yeah, oh, yes. Great. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It's still good programming. It's still great programming. Support your local yes. PBS station, folks. <laughs> no matter the generation. That's yes, right. That's right. <laughs> So that I'm curious too. So like, so we've got yes, we got Anna Green Gables, we've got PBS, <laughs> Theater, and and as you're exploring in high school, and it really is clicking for you. Like, who were some of the artists, whether it was theater or TV or film, that were really resonating with you as you were going down this path? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I thought about this question um, a little bit beforehand. You and I were talking before we started recording. Um, it's so mm -hmm. interesting because I my heroes came from so many different walks of life in terms of like mm -hmm. the artistic influences. And, and when I thought about it today, I was trying to figure out like who were like the definitive people in my life when I was younger, who I was like, I have to see them. And he, and I was always moved by them. And there were so many, but I, I there were some specific ones I was like, I have to call out. Um, Felicia Rashad, when I was a kid, you know, the Cosby show, and I know there's controversy around Bill Cosby himself, but the show itself was revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And for mm -hmm. me in particular, um, Felicia Rashad was like this goddess, right? Like she was this beautiful, somewhat dark-skinned woman, right? Like com compared mm -hmm. to the other women that I was seeing on television, she was a dark-skinned woman. She was um, she was smart. And I don't like really using the word sassy because, you know, that has all kind of connotation to it. But but she she yeah. she could she could do that thing that black women know how to do, right? That thing where we can be refined and poised, but we can also mm -hmm. flip on you, right? Mm -hmm. And so she had mm -hmm. a, a she had a way of doing that. And it's so interesting because I always and at one point before I wanted to go into art I actually wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and I, it's interesting oh. looking back now because I was like, maybe I actually just wanted to be Claire Huxtable is maybe what it was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, even though I loved and admired her so much and still do, I remember very distinctly, and I, I have two sisters in addition to two brothers, and I remember distinctly um, coming across Debbie Allen. 
And mm. and it's so interesting because when I saw the two of them together and I would over the years see them perform together, I always laugh because what I realize is that Felicia Rashad is my older sister, Kendra. They have the same temperament. They're very poised. They're very elegant. Like they have a, a great sense of humor, but most people don't think of them as like the people who are like cracking everybody up, right? Like, and mm-hmm. Debbie Allen is like this wild child who comes in and she's all over the place and she's incredible, but she's also like exhausting in a good way. And I was like, when I saw her, I was like, oh, I'm not Felicia Rashad. I'm Debbie Allen. I'm the the loud mouth. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in the most respectful and loving way. I mean, she's just yeah. full of life. Right. And just, yeah. just, just. I mean, I'm gushing just thinking about her, right? And so it's so interesting because my older sister and I actually at one point used to do like, um, we, she was my scene partner. She was a senior in high school and I was a freshman and um, I, we would go on competitions and my sister was my scene partner. And I remember the dynamic of, again, the older sister who's a little more protective and a little bit more reserved. And then you got this wild child, for me, middle sister, who's just like all over the place. So I definitely, Debbie Allen resonates with me so much. She's my spirit animal. Um, So she she definitely is somebody who I look back on. And then I would say, um, this is going to sound crazy, Punky Brewster, because she's in the news as of late, but also because I just remember she was outrageous and out of the box, and it sounds so corny, but I I always felt like a fish out of water growing up. I always felt like not quite right. Like, I could tell that I wasn't quite in the right space. I wasn't, people didn't quite understand me or know what to do with me. I talked a lot. I was, you know, just as I am right now, right? (laughs) And so I really, Punky Brewster resonated with me. And then it's so interesting. I'm looking at the trajectory as of late of Regina King's career. And I remember distinctly Mm -hmm. watching her grow up and she's, you know, we're not too far apart in age, um, but she's, she's, she's closer to my sister, my older sister's age, but watching her grow up as Brenda on 227 and going, I want to do that. Like she's close to my, Mm. I can do what she's like, you know what I mean? Like that. So it's so amazing to me now seeing like her and how her um, career has, has grown over the years. And I know that there, there are certainly, you know, heavyweights in terms of icons and actors across the board who I could mention. But when you ask me that question, I had to sit and go, who are the people who day in, day out on a regular basis as a kid was I turning, you know, tuning into going, oh my God, you know, and, and feeling Mm -hmm. all that, like feeling my heart chakra open up. Right. And it was definitely Felicia Rashad. It was definitely Debbie Allen. It was Regina King, because for me, Regina King, you didn't see a lot of young black girls on television when I was growing up. You, you, and I mentioned Punky Brewster, like Sherry, I think her, her name is Sherry Johnson. Um, who was on that show and then later went on to do Family Matters. Like, even then, she was the sidekick, right? Like, there there just weren't uh-huh. any Black girls who were, like... Um, you know, present and, and, and they showed her as a real black teenager, liking Bobby Brown, dancing with Bobby Brown, like that kind of thing. And it was like, yeah. Oh, she's like me. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, and then of course, you know, my dad always made sure that we had the, the staples. So I, I grew up listening to jazz. I grew up listening to, you know, old school R and B. So any of those folks, if we, you, you know, we could talk John Coltrane, Miles Davis all day long. Um, when we're talking yeah. about influences, but I watched a lot of television and listen to a lot of music growing up and theater came along much later in my life actually 
Oh, that's okay. That's interesting to know. And mm-hmm. it, but you know, you bring up a good point. Like with TV, is it's like a vessel to represent life. Like that is something that Americans have tuned into time and time again to have their life kind of validated, right? Right. right. In certain yeah. ways, and so to have that representation. Um, of, of multi-dimensional black women, right? Yes. Like that, when, you, when you're talking about Claire Huxtable, it is like the fact that she can be laughing, having a good time with the kids, be a lawyer, like, you know, a yeah. serious lawyer, yeah. uh, take and, yeah, take and build a task when he needed it to, like, it's, you right. know, it's, it's, it's showing us this full, I was going to say, showing us this full and fully developed human beings, which even now is still, is still very hard to find a lot of the times. And, and I know we're going to talk about this later, but it's actually why I launched my production company. I just got tired of seeing black people only presented through the gaze of white white america right like like we can only mm-hmm. be seen as we're seen by others and i i'm i'm tired of that and and i mm-hmm. want you know the next generation of kalilas to see themselves i don't want them to go oh well there's that one girl on that one tv show i want it to be like a plethora i want them to be like oh my god there's so many of us i wish they would cancel that show like that's that's what i'm aiming for <laughs> that's when i feel like we will have reached success when it's like there's too many of us there's we're on everything <laughs> let's get to that mm-hmm. problem <laughs> Right. Well, and and that's a good point, too, because like right now there is such a a lack like like and that's why I think um, how would I want to phrase it? Like people sometimes feel let down or disappointed by certain shows or 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 movies or whatever it is because it's like, oh, we only have that we can like, you know, we need a whole array of stories to represent all the lived experiences because right now it's always just like one singular story and like it may not fulfill our excitement like er- everyone's excitement of what they want a tv show or a movie to that's be that's exactly that right i i I, okay. I think it was chris rock who basically said um when black people can be mediocre that's when we will have made it and and i and, yes. I, and, and i felt feel that in my core like he always tells this joke about how he's he there are two black people in his neighborhood he said there's me and there's mayor j blige and he was like and this is not ego but we're at the top 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 of our game he's like do you know who my neighbor is he's a white guy who's a dentist he was like, like, he was like I need y'all to understand that. And so he's like, when black people get to the point where we can be mediocre and, 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 and still have the same level of success as everyone else, then we will have made it. And we're not there yet. We've got a ways. Right. Yeah. That is, I, I love that quote. And I'm going to carry that with me. That's so real. It's yeah, so real. And like sure. having, which you also alluded to as well, like having, having black people be centered, yes. you know, not the sidekicks, not the villains, yeah. whatever, like being the center and having their voices and stories be the center um so i feel that i know it's and it's i'm excited to hear more about your production company too um because it's it's some you know like we have to have the pioneers who are going to be revolutionizing that space um and continue to, to press forward with what we have and just continue to make it grow um I was also curious when theater entered the scene for you. Oh, um, I would say officially in high school. Um, okay. I like I like I mentioned before, back in the day, masterpiece theater, at least in my little corner of the world, um, was actual theater. <laughs> like now, masterpiece uh-huh. theater is like Downton Abbey, right? Like it's it's where right. where where PBS puts up their 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 um 
their award show potential nominees, right? Which is great. But when I was a kid, I remember seeing like live productions on Masterpiece Theater. And that was the first time that I had any concept of what live theater was. Because um, Mm -hmm. other than a very um, um, small production, when I was quite literally in kindergarten, I think, um, we went out of town to this big children's theater production or what have you and they did like three different fairy tale stories one of them was princess in the pea but outside of that moment in time never saw live theater live and in person until I got to high school and it was actually presented to me primarily through competition we would go on speech and debate tournaments and you would I we I would participate by doing the poetry poetry and prose competition and then also the duets which was scenes and so we did I was studying at school and then going on these competitions and that was really my introduction into theater yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then, of course, yes, marketing and communications is also a huge part of your career now. Um, how did you discover that? It's so funny. Uh, this is another example of divine intervention, which is a common theme throughout my life. Um, I, I I always have plans in my mind and then God laughs and goes, I got something else in mind. Right. Um, and so what happened was I went to, I went to, I studied uh, communications and theater arts in undergrad at Dillard University. Shout out to Dillard. Um, uh, one of the best, if not the best, HBCU in all the land. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I studied communications and theater arts and um, afterwards went to grad school at uh, NYU, New York University. And when I went to NYU, I, I was studying arts administration, but I didn't know the specifics of what exactly I wanted to do. I just knew that I loved the performing arts and I wanted to be able to bring some type of administrative skill set um, to that world. To, to, I basically was like, we have a lot of people wanting to perform. Who's running the business? So I went to school mm. to learn how to be a business person in the arts. And right. within the first year, and my grad program was two years, um, I would say within the first semester, it was very clear to me that marketing and marketing was going to be my focus. And what solidified it was I was in my arts marketing course, uh, that class, which is taught by the wonderful Wendy Persons, and mm-hmm. she is wise enough to bring in other practitioners in the field. And she brought in the legendary Donna Walker Kuhn. And if you're in the theater space or in the Broadway world, you should know that name. If you don't know that name, I question how long you've been in this space because Donna is an icon. She's a legend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she's a legend. And at any rate, uh, and and just for those who may not know, Donna is essentially, she quite literally wrote the book, um, (laughs) Invitation to the Party, talking about the need to engage audiences of color particularly black audiences in a very organic and a unique and and um, earnest way as opposed to bringing us in after the fact and Mm. she came to our our arts marketing class and I'll be honest with you up until that point I I was good in the class but I was just kind of like just going through the motions and Donna came into that class and spoke and it woke something up in me. It was like, it's that feeling that you have when you know you found whatever it was that you were looking for. And I Mm. immediately went up to her at the end of the class. And I was like, we had a, an internship that was a required, we had two internships we were required to take um, in that program. And I had already taken one. And I said to Donna, I, 
I have to study it with you next semester or next year. And she was like, of course. And of course, I didn't know then that Donna is who she is in the sense that like, not only is she an amazing person in this industry and space, but she's an amazing mentor. She's that's what she does. She builds new next generation uh, leaders. And so she didn't hesitate. She was like, oh, yeah, of course, I'd love to have you like without a second thought. And so um, I went to go work for her and she taught me everything that she she taught me everything that I knew up until that point until somebody else came in and taught me more. Um, and so that was, that was my, my introduction to marketing in terms of arts marketing. It just, Donna took it to a whole nother level for me, made it real. Mm -hmm. Right. Shout out to Donna. (laughs) That is such a cool story. I did not know that. And it it just, um, it's just so important, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if I would be curious if you describe that moment as a, like, if you see it, you can be it moment, but it felt like there was this intrinsic connection for you. It definitely was. It was a crystallizing moment. It's, you know, you see those movies where it's like everything kind of freezes and stop motion and you see, and it was like that. It was like, oh my God. Cause I'll be honest with you. That class was like, I think it was on a Monday night. I, at that time I was still working at Sony. I was a full-time employee at Sony. I, so, so doing a full work day you know doing a full work day and then having to trudge across you mm-hmm. know town to get to the village to get to NYU and have to sit through this class when all you want to do is to go home and go to bed and it and and listen Wendy is a great teacher Wendy is an amazing teacher has has brought up a, a generation of great uh, marketers but it was something about Donna coming into that room in that space that for me to your point I think seeing a black woman and seeing a black woman in the in the world of theater which it's so hard for us to move in these spaces it's so hard to break into those spaces so to have someone who was there and could provide me with essentially a guide map um was I can't tell and honestly Donna still plays that role in my life she will send me things she she's the reason I went to the Apollo like quite literally the really? reason I yes I looked at the job posting for the Apollo for I know four to six weeks I looked at it and I was like I'm not ready I don't have enough you know experience I'm not qualified and quite literally out of the blue one day um I got an email from Donna she said hey the Apollo's looking for a marketing director and at that point I'd only had one other marketing director role I'd worked at the Atlantic Theater Company um for Neil Pepe and um Andy Hammingson when he was still there uh, and then eventually um uh, Jeff Lawson came over and at any rate I was there I'd left had moved back home and was itching to get back to New York but but the idea of me being the director of marketing at the Apollo I was like come on like that's a lot to hope for mm-hmm. especially for someone who's literally only had one job as director of marketing and um Donna was like you need to apply and I was like I'm not qualified she's like you're qualified apply <laughs> And you need that. You need someone who believes in you more than you might be able to believe in yourself from moment to moment. And Donna has consistently been that person as my mentor. And and just as even outside of being my mentor, that's just who she is as a a person. She um, she really believes that there is space and opportunity for all of us. Um, And when I say all of us, I mean specifically black people in this industry and in this space. And she's always working to create those opportunities and to encourage you to, if those opportunities aren't there, to make them for yourself. So shout out to Donna Walker. (laughs) Yes, that, that, you know, nurturing and cultivation of, of the next generation is just 
so key like Yo, that's, you can't yeah. make it in this industry particularly as a person of color as a black woman without a mentor I don't if you can I don't know how like re- mm-hmm. really really I really don't know how people can make it in this industry without a mentor because Donna's the person who I would go to when I'm like so this is the feedback I got or this is what was said to me in a in a, in a meeting now not with everything but whenever I felt my back up against the wall and I needed someone who had been in that position or a similar position or could just had some wisdom to share Donna was my person that I went to so because I'll tell you what too and the, I'm I'm literally getting goosebumps just thinking about it but um I, I'd be curious I feel like my experience has been this you know when you are one of one of if not the only black person in the meetings like mm-hmm, you were just saying mm-hmm. or you know in these spaces that are very white I, I feel like that 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 um it, it tampers with your intuition. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And so to ha- yeah, to have a mentor like you were saying who can be like gut check, no, you're you know, this and this and that that is so yeah. important. Yeah, and also because there's a lot of gaslighting that happens when you're in spaces and you're the only one, whether intention mm-hmm. I mean, and I say gaslighting with the full knowledge that sometimes people are aware that they're doing it and sometimes they're not. Um, mm. because as a society, we've, we've, we've learned to excuse and accept certain things as, oh, that's just how they are. Or that's just how we do business around here. Right. So sometimes people are gaslighting and it's not even, um, with malicious intent It's just that they're, they're carrying on the status quo. And so someone like Donna, to your point about that whole thing about your intuition, like you all of a sudden start second guessing yourself on, on so many things and Mm -hmm. having someone like a Donna in your corner to be able to go. So I heard this in a conversation or this piece of creative came my way and it made me feel some kind of way. Am I being overly sensitive? Like Donna was that person for me who was like, no, you're right. That's racist. (laughs) You know, like she would, she would help me level set so that I wasn't, because especially when you're younger and you're new and you're coming into, to, to that space and that world and you're trying to figure out how to navigate it. And you're like, is it me? Am I off? Is my perception of things off? And um, Mm -hmm. more often than not, the answer was no. No, you're not off. You're not wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm so happy. I, I did not know that part of your story. That is so, yeah. that makes me so happy yeah. to hear though. And I'm glad that she pushed you. Yes. For the director of marketing <laughs> job at the Apollo. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But those kind of institutions can be really intimidating. Um, mm. I wanted to hear all about the experience, but like what, yeah. What was your first like year there? Like what were your initial like, how, yeah. how did you feel becoming the director of marketing for the Apollo Theater? I have to tell you, for the first year, it felt like I kept going, this is a dream and I'm going to wake up. Like, it really felt like that. Like, I legit was like, I was so nervous the first, I, I will say, I wasn't nervous past the first two months. Like, the first two months, I was just a nervous wreck. Um, just and And not because of anything other than just, feeling the pressure of wanting to do well like I've always Mm. been an A student an A B student I've never done less than that I've always done well so I wanted to do well and and to kind of put it into context I had quite literally only had one other official marketing job I'd had internships but I'd only had one job in marketing and so to go from that one job where I was literally the only person in my marketing department I had an intern but it was just me over at Atlantic um, Mm. to go 
to and I and I actually worked a job in between there actually was a fundraiser for like close to three years for my alma mater and um and then I got the call to go to the Apollo but that I so in the beginning it was just first of all when you when you get a role like that especially when you come from my background where again girl from the country girl small town <laughs> you know right, um, right. there's there is this pressure of wanting to do well because you know that other people are rooting for you right and mm. and that there's so much even though people don't intentionally put pressure on you 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 put at least I do put I put a lot of pressure on myself it's like all of the you know your parents are so proud you're mm-hmm. my I remember my nieces and nephew at the time my sister my older sister was like you know TT's gonna go work for the Apollo and they were like oh my god that's so exciting these children had no <laughs> idea what the Apollo was like they were little babies so they had no context but they knew it was super exciting and super important yeah. so I'm like okay so it's it's that it's wanting to make your family proud it's wanting you know all of these friends who are like oh my god you're going to work at the Apollo like it's wanting to have all the people who have faith and belief in belief in you to you 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 don't want them to to turn around and go mm that sure was misplaced, right? Like you don't want them to Uh feel that. So there's all that pressure. But then add to that, when you walk into spaces and say to people, I'm the director of marketing at the Apollo, just knowing immediately the expectation on the other side of that, like people's posture changes when you tell them that. And, Mm -hmm. And knowing that there's a lot on your shoulders to carry, not to mention all of the history. You're talking about what could quit is the quintessential American institution. Like there, uh, when you talk about iconic institutions in America and, and culturally speaking, there's nothing greater than the Apollo. I mean, you have Carnegie hall, but when you're talking about black folks, that's, that's not something that's like ours. Right. And, um, right. and even when you just talk about an American institution where like um, a specific type of music and all music you know I used to we this was now I have to give my spiel from when I was formerly at the Apollo where we're like the Apollo is a place (laughs) where all music is and it is like you know when I was there Bruce Springsteen came through we had like ACDC so we had every because everybody understands the the credibility and and the and the the it's the it's the housekeeping seal of approval I say right like if you play the Apollo you can play anywhere uh huh. And so knowing that going in and knowing, I basically felt like here. I guess this is the best way to sum it up. If you've ever seen Showtime at the Apollo, and you know when when people when they and it's based on Amateur Night, and there's that segment where it's a question of is that person going to be good enough to avoid Sandman, or is Sandman going to come in and sweep them off the floor? Um, mm-hmm. and I was for the first I would say six months like please don't send Sandman in to get me. I just I just want to make it through like please. And I I mean I, five years later I felt like I came and I did what I was supposed to do, and it was um, by far of all of the professional experiences I've ever had it was the most rewarding it's where I learned the most it's where I grew the most it's where I felt probably the most supported um anywhere I've ever worked where I got to you know really try a lot of things creatively um it's still home like I I feel like the Apollo I feel like the same way I feel about my undergrad alma mater like it's home to me I walk in the building still and I see people I love and miss and um so yeah it's I think when you've had um, the experiences that the Apollo affords you, it's hard to not be emotionally attached to it. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I mean, that's so real. And I love that. Um, 
and I appreciate your honesty too of like, yeah, when you come from a small town and you're in New York City and you're at this, yeah, like you said, iconic cultural institution, like that's scary. Yeah, because you don't want to mess it up. Like you don't want to be the person that's like, oh, you were at the Apollo when they did that terrible campaign about this. Or, you know, right, or, right. oh, that was your flyer. Oh, okay. <laughs> like you, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. Instead, you want to be, and you know, and I was very fortunate, like while I was there, because the 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 institution had kind of, so, so the Apollo is a nonprofit, which a lot of people don't know. It became a nonprofit, I think, like 25 years ago or 30 years ago, something like that. Not very long ago compared to like other arts institutions. And so for so long, it was just a rental house. It, it, people would come in, they would rent the space, host a, a, a concert and they would move on. And so Mickey Shepard was brought on board um, a, a few years before I came on there, was brought on board to basically institute a pro uh, a program of, uh, of, I mean, ar- to institute artistic programming. Um, and part of that in doing that, she said, well, we need a, de- we need a marketing department to market this stuff. There had been no marketing department, not, not a, I mean, there had been people who had been working in marketing, but not a fully functional institutionalized marketing uh, department. Um, and so Rick Thompson was brought in and he started building that thing from the ground up. And that was who brought me in, he and Mickey. And, it's so interesting to see because there there was the potential for an entire generation of people to not know the the history and the the um significance and the impact of the Apollo because there was a window of time where you weren't hearing anything about the Apollo not if you lived outside of New York like you just mm-hmm. you know Showtime at the Apollo wasn't on television anymore like it just wasn't it wasn't in the the everyday lexicon the way it was like when I was growing up or even when my parents were growing up and so part of our task you know myself and the other folks who were part of that marketing department when Rick came on board was to rebuild the recognition of the brand so that the next generation wouldn't go what's the Apollo like I don't want my nieces and nephews to say what's the Apollo like it's okay when they were five but now you know they're 20 something so they should know and understand well gosh man time flies <laughs> I'm sitting here like well they couldn't have been five but they were too much older than that and they're like 20 now so anyway wow um so yeah so you understand that what you're building is it's not and it's not to say that any job is more important than any other but when you're holding a heritage brand or when you're managing a brand that everybody knows and especially one that means so much to your own personal community um there's there's pressure there but it's also there's also this feeling of ownership and of excitement that, hey, I get to help continue to push forward our legacy and our culture. And that, that was always special to come into every day. Yeah. Oh, I, I can. Oh, ooh, yes. I love that. I can only imagine. <laughs> well, because I'm even thinking too, like, were the offices like in the theater? Like, were y'all on 125th? Yeah, the offices were in the building and they were upstairs. And I'm not kidding you. I used to tell people till the day that I left that building, I never took for granted the space that we were in. Like every mm. to every time I would walk in and be sit at the back of the theater or, you know, would be backstage doing something. I was always aware of the fact that, hey, James Brown walked around back here or, mm-hmm. hey, Michael Jackson and his brothers danced on this stage or, you know, Gregory mm-hmm. Hines and his brother, um, Maurice oh. Hines, temp danced on it. Like, I was always hyper aware of what that, to me, the Apollo is sacred. Like, it just is. Mm-hmm. There's no other word for it. And and you feel that. You feel that the moment you walk in the space. You know, I, I, I think we're so quick to try and 
hype things up right when they don't when they and, and some things don't live up to the hype like I always used to tell people when they would come to New York um friends would come to visit and they would want to go see the Statue of Liberty and I was like listen someone told me this my first year here and I find it to be the most valuable um advice for any tourist and that is don't waste your don't waste your time going to Ellis Island. Like quite literally get on the Staten Island ferry right across, take some pictures and come back. That's two hours of your life. And then you've seen <laughs> statue of Liberty and you keep it moving. Right. And, and I right. say that, to, and I say that jokingly, but also in the sense of there's a grandness of it, but seeing it, it's like, okay, it's amazing. It's great. But once you've seen it, it's kind of like, that never happened for me at the Apollo. Every single day when I would come in that space, I was like, man, it feels, it felt holy. And that, that may sound mm-hmm. extreme, but it, it did to me. No, I love that. I love that you said sacred too, because yeah. it really was. Yeah. What do you have a favorite memory, whether it's like a campaign you did or like a performance that you witnessed or or just a moment from then that you love? Oh my God. It's so funny because I thought about this earlier. And it's so important for people to understand that the Apollo has hundreds of shows every year. <laughs> And that is not yeah. hyperbole, quite literally between the educational programs, the the stuff that happens on the main stage, the sound stage, the, the rentals, which a lot of times the marketing department, we would provide additional support beyond whatever, you know, the, um, the client who was renting the space would have. And so literally we could in an in a year on average put forth hundreds of shows so it's so to some extent it's kind of hard to separate them all out because there were so many but i will say there were two two specific moments that i i i always bring up when i whenever i talk about my apollo memories and one of them was um when d'angelo returned um when he did his uh messiah album the 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 oh vanguard album and he had you know he had gone on sabbatical we hadn't seen him for years and he was like it was his first stop on his uh u.s tour and he was like i want to come to the apollo and and he was a former amateur night women winner so for us it was him coming home right and yes. so we're we're all excited and it was it was during a time in our department we had a, a brand new senior director and we were trying to figure out how do we keep advancing our story? How do we keep make making sure that the brand is relevant? And so we determined that we needed to do like a photo shoot. And we were like, we we're having, we were having trouble capturing the energy of our audience. We were like, our audiences are amazing. And that's the thing that makes the Apollo so special. It's, it's what makes it different from all every other music venue in the world is that the audience is as much a participant in what's happening, especially if you're coming to amateur night, the audience is mm-hmm. as much a participant in what is happening as the performance on stage. So we were like, how do we capture that energy? So Melissa, Melissa Skinner shout out to her um, Melissa came in and said you know what let's do a photo shoot and so we're like okay let's do a photo shoot <laughs> and she was like no 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 let's do a photo shoot during one of our concerts and at the time we didn't know that D'Angelo was coming so we were like brainstorming this and then we got work because often we would find out about things like literally we could find out a concert was going to happen like three days before like seriously it was it was crazy so so we found out that he was coming so we're like well that's the show for sure and he and I think he did two or three performances I can't remember but anyway so because we had a photographer on hand and he we needed to make sure he was capturing images I normally I and most of the other staff would during shows we hang back and we're on the back wall that's where the best angle of the show is like you can watch yeah. the crowd and see the see what's going on and then you can slip in and out as you need to 
But for that show, because I wanted to make sure we got the right audience reactions, I was front and center. Um, I mean, all over the front row, all over the front row, climbing over people's feet, you know, just doing whatever. I, I told my friend, I was like, I think I actually got some of D'Angelo's sweat on me. And so, well, <laughs> but what was cool about it, other than it was just, I mean, oh my God, it was so amazing. I remember at one point going up to the balcony and the energy was so intense. People were so into it and so feeling it. I swear, I thought the balcony was going to break. Like I thought it was going to, I thought the building was going to collapse. That's how into it everybody was. So there was that moment, which was just otherworldly. And also because my best friend loves D'Angelo so much that when I, you know, told him that I was going to that concert, I still use it as like, (laughs) I like, I still use it to upset him, like it's a time. Right. So, (laughs) So there was that moment. And then I would say another definitive moment is, you know, the Apollo is like a Mecca for a lot of people. So, um, when, when major icons and they don't have to even be musical icons, but when major icons in our community, um, pass, the Apollo is oftentimes the first place that people go to acknowledge it. So we got into this, we started this, this, um, tradition essentially of, we would write messages, you know, acknowledging. So, you know, uh, acknowledging whomever had just passed. And so when Prince died, so first of all, mm. just to put it into context, we all loved Prince. Like, of course, everybody loves Prince, mm-hmm. right? But right. my colleague, <laughs> who is the PR director, shout out to Nina Flowers. Um, she is literally, there are two people in this world who matter to her. There's Prince and there's Jay-Z. That's it. I mean, she likes other people, but that's who she lives for. So when Prince died, of course, we were all shook. Her even more so, I think, than most of us. And we all mm. took it really hard. But you're the Mecca where people are coming to, to, to grieve. So we had to get, you know, language up on that, but we were all like, we can't just put his name on the marquee and be done. Like, what else are we doing? So we hooked up the sound system on the marquee. We played his music all night long. People came. It just was an impromptu memorial. We ended up having a, a more formal thing later. Um, we inducted him, inducted him posthumously into the walk of fame where we, they brought like one of his motorcycles. Like it's like, it was a whole thing, but that, initial that first night when it first happened the way we organically were there and just people were grieving and mourning and celebrating his life through his music under the marquee of the Apollo was just something that when it was all said and done I just remember looking over at Nina and us just being like exhausted physically and emotionally but also just like the sense of in a way we got to kind of be connected to his legacy right like because here we were with the people in the community celebrating this man who brought so much you know joy and happiness through his music so um so there are a thousand moments like that and that's not again that is not an exaggeration but those are two that I think are probably some of the the fun memories or the special memories that I think of for sure oh I got goosebumps <laughs> with the print story that oh yeah like, I mean, yeah you know because coll- the collective like sense of grief mm-hmm. around those kind of moments like to, to share that like I just imagine yeah. I know electric might be a weird word to use but that's what it sounded like you know yeah that's ex- that no that's that's spot on I remember when Aretha Franklin passed we had both already I had moved on I was at Disney at that point um, I actually may have already been gone from Disney and she had left the Apollo and we both literally we were the first people we texted like we were but we because we were like 
honestly, it used to be the thing. We were like, if Aretha passes, everything is going to have to shut down in this theater. Like we, like, and so for mm-hmm. years we were like, I hate to say it, you're just kind of on standby that, you know, people who are older, um, that they might go. And so when she finally did pass and we were no longer there, it felt weird to not activate that part of your brain that goes, what do we do to honor her? Like, because that's what we were used to. We were used to figuring out a way to honor, like even with Mary Wilson, for sure. I'm sure they're doing something because again, another one of ours who's, you know, and it it was just another way, I think, to acknowledge how important those people were to our community specifically. And, and that always, the Apollo is amazing at doing that. Oof. I, I love that. That's so beautiful. Wow. So you, you were there for five years? Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. No, yeah. Just, just under, I think. Wow. So the pivot, I don't know if pivot's the right word, but the transition to Disney from the Apollo, um, Mm -hmm. I want to hear about Mm -hmm. because Disney, I'm almost scared to like say the name. I'm like, the mask is going to come after me. Um, But you know, (laughs) it has a very interesting relationship with diversity and like there have been really great moments obviously there have been some not so great moments and I'm just curious like your position was the director of marketing but as we were talking about with the tastemakers event like you focused on DEI initiatives um Mm -hmm. and I just want to hear about you know going from the Apollo to Disney what that was like um in the beginning it was a dream (laughs) it was amazing it was everything that I had been working for for so many years like I never I never set out I never set out to go work for anybody like I just am always I always follow my passion I always follow my purpose and I feel like the right jobs or opportunities come your way when they're supposed to you just have to be ready for them um but I certainly was aware of the power and the impact of working for a brand like Disney and so um when the opportunity presented itself, I applied for the, for the role and, 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 and it moved the, the interview process moved pretty quickly. So there wasn't even time for me to really go, is this the right thing to do? It was like, it's Disney. Of course you're going <laughs> like, there, there's no yeah. question. And, and it's important to know too, like I, prior to the Apollo, I had never been in a role longer than three years, like three years was my max. Okay. And then I was like out. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't intentional. It was just that like, I, when I get bored, I have to be challenged. And so when I feel like I'm not growing anymore, then I feel like it's time to move on. And so I was at the Apollo for five years, which to me goes to show how very much I learned and how very much I grew because I stayed there longer than I had stayed anywhere else prior to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, the thing is, the goal is always to keep moving and advancing and creep and to keep learning. And so for me, moving from the, um, the world of the Apollo to Disney was like a dream come true in so many ways because um, I was finally moving actively into theater as my primary, even though we Mm. did some theatrical stuff at the Apollo, I wanted to be working on Broadway. (laughs) Like that was always (laughs) Kalila's goal was I want to be on Broadway. Um, And so there was that aspect of it. And then, hey, let's just be real. Money. Hey, the the Disney played quite well. (laughs) And I was was like, I was creeping into 40 and I was like, listen, I need to, I need to retire a nest egg. So let's, let's do this. And so (laughs) I was very excited to go to Disney. Um, And I will say that for a while, I was very happy at Disney. Like I, I worked with some, um, with mostly some really great, not even mostly. I, I would say 99% of the people that I, I encountered at Disney were amazing people. Um, but I did have challenges there. Um, 
I've written all about them. I, I, I will I will spare all the details, but um, for the same reasons that you were like, oh, we don't have to go into that. <laughs> but, but I will say the, the major difference I will say of going from from the Apollo to Disney is so right at the gate, you're going from a nonprofit cultural institution to a, mm. a major conglomerate um, that mm-hmm. just so happens to do theater, you know, as one of their you know, I, I call it their, their pet projects, right? Like it's not even their primary focus. Um, it brings in a lot of money, but it's not the thing that is keeping their board up at night for sure. Um, and yeah. so, so that there's that aspect of it, but then there's also, you go from an organization that has maybe a hundred employees and that's not including, um, production crew at the Apollo to hundreds of thousands of people at Disney, you know, like, that's insane. So there's always that level of, I felt like when I was at the Apollo that we were part of a family, even if, even if that, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that you didn't get frustrated with people or you didn't have the normal, you know, annoyances that you have with one another as coworkers. Um, but there is a sense of we're all in this together and we're all w- working towards the greater good. And anytime you're, I think in a corporate setting, there is a culture of, I won't even say competition because I think that's a given, but there's this culture of just pressure like this of, Mm -hmm. of, we want to honestly, it, if for me, it just felt like, how can we make your life as stressful as possible? Like things that really shouldn't have been stressful were stressful. Um, and, and I've worked at corporations before. I mean, I worked at Sony for two years that it's not like a big working for a big corporation was, um, a new, was new to me. It just, I, there were a lot of things and a lot of it had to do with, you know, the person who I worked directly for that made that experience challenging for me. Um, but I, what I will say is, um, there was a lot of, there were a lot of, I think there were a lot of opportunities that, an organization like the Apollo knew how to take advantage of that. Strangely enough, an organization like Disney still hasn't figured out. Um, And I honestly think it just comes down to very simply prioritization and also leadership in terms of like, if you don't have people of color, if you don't have black people in the room who are telling you, no, we can't run that ad. It's, it's, it's offensive. Or even saying, Hey, we don't have anything that engages black people um, or engages other groups of color um, in our work. And I, and I mean, beyond the surface, Um, you know, one of my biggest frustrations working um, at DTG was, you know, we had these amazingly diverse cast on stage and then you'd come upstairs into the administrative offices. And I was one of only two black execs. Mm, what the heck mm, <laughs> like mm. you're telling me there are no more talented executive level people in this entire city who look like me like I it's hard to believe right. and, and I want to be clear it wasn't just that there were no other um black executives I'm I'm searching there were a couple of other people of color um but there was in terms of black people there was me and one other person um and that for me was always very disheartening because again I'm responsible at that point in time of you know, encouraging people to come and watch our works and saying, hey, you can bring your kids because there are people who look like them on stage. But I'm also going home at night knowing that I'm the only person in, in my department who looks like me. And I'm mm-hmm. one of the only I'm one of only a handful of people who look like five total who look like me in the entire building like wow. that. That was, you know, a challenge. 
It is. And it's it's emotionally exhausting for you. Oh, God, yes. So interestingly enough, to bring it back full, full circle, um, because I'm not one to just be in a space and be frustrated and, and just kind of throw up my hands and go, oh, well, that's life. So because I very quickly, you know, was able to assess that there that we needed we needed to shake some things up. Um, um, the year that I was there, I instituted a diversify and in, intensify marketing campaign. And it had the very distinct goals of one, actually working to engage and cultivate relationships with people, audiences of color. Because one of the things that you often hear in the Broadway space is that, you know, well, we want to engage people of color, but they just don't come to the theater, which I which I always say, I believe to be an out, out, out and out lie. <laughs> and here's why. Mm-hmm. I believe that it is that when you go to, because the way in which they gather this information is they do surveys and the surveys are conducted at the theaters and, the, uh. and they're administered by the theaters ushers or their front of house staff. And almost, I would wager to say probably 95 to 97% of most front of house staff are white and women uh-huh. of a certain age. So if I'm a white woman of a certain age, the odds, and not even if I'm a white woman of a certain age, if I'm anybody of any age and any color, the odds are that you're going to approach people who look like you. So if mm. I'm an older if I'm an older white woman who goes to theater, I'm more than likely going to approach an older white woman to ask her what she thought of the show. Did you enjoy the show? Did you bring your kids to the show? And I say this as someone who has gone to countless Broadway shows over the years, over the decades, and has never, never been surveyed. None of my Mm. friends have ever been surveyed. And we're talking about people who are in this industry who do this work. And I say that to say, you know, bad daddy in, bad daddy out. So when you have the Broadway League who says, well, our numbers show, because I remember having this debate with a a former boss. And she was like, well, the numbers show that people of color don't go to the... I said, I can walk downstairs in our theater right now and I can tell you what our audience looks like. I don't need a survey for that. And so you're trying to argue against systems that in and of themselves are grounded in white supremacy and, and institutionalized racism. And not because they the policies themselves or the acts themselves are racist, but because people have bias. Just naturally they have bias. Mm-hmm. So if you don't make an effort to recruit front of house staff who are as diverse as the city in which you exist, then how do you mm. expect that your data that reports on your audience is going to show anything else? So when the Broadway leak turns around and says, or when we're reading an article and someone's saying, well, you know, overwhelmingly theater, yes, yes, overwhelmingly theater audiences are white, but are the numbers in terms of the, the amount of people of color who are coming to the theater as terrible as we think they are? I don't think so. And so all of that to say, so I, you know, launched this diversify and intensify campaign with the distinct goal of saying, okay, well, if that, if you believe that that data is true, then that means that we have a lot of work to do and you can't just send people um, a flyer in the mail saying, come see the show. You have to call co- co- audiences of color, particularly black people and brown people. We are notorious. If you don't develop a relationship with us, we will, we will act like we don't know you exist. Because we don't, because we genuinely yeah. don't. And it's not because we don't have the money. We know that those groups right. have, have the resources. Um, and so I, I, I launched this campaign with the intent of saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to challenge you by challenge my company at the time by saying, okay, you're saying that these audiences don't come. Then I'm saying the onus is on us. 
If they're not coming, they're not coming because to quote my, you know, mentor, Donald Walker Kuhn, they haven't been invited to the party. So invite us yes. to the party. So that was that event that you came to. It was the Tastemakers of Color event where we literally went out and we engaged different people of color from all walks of life and said, hey, come see our show and let's talk about you know, a lack of representation on the stage, behind the stage, what have you. And it was an amazing conversation in the beginning of, um, I think, some efforts within the industry to try and start moving the needle forward. Um, I would have loved to have seen how it would have grown over the years. But that first night was, to use your word, it was electric. (laughs) It was amazing. (laughs) It really, really, really was. And it's I I have photos from it and it holds a really special place in my heart. Um, So I appreciate all of the work you put into that. And I appreciate the gems of knowledge you just shared with us because wow 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 and everyone listening please hire Kalila because <laughs> that you just got that for free like that but you're you're so right like people need to be paying you for this insight and that like just the bias of the front how I'm like oh yeah. that's so accurate yeah, and, and so it's not accurate. intentional it's just the reality but it's little things like that of the not seeing it because it doesn't impact you and I, and I get it. I get it. I mean, there are things I'm, I'm an, uh, an able-bodied person. So there are things that someone who is less abled will say, Hey, did you know it's an inconvenience for me to have, you know, I've been making a point as a, you know, lately as a content creator to go, we need to make sure we have closed captions. That's something that even though I enjoy it as a, as a viewer on television, having that option, it's not something that I feel I have to have, but for someone that makes the difference between them being able to, to engage with content and not, but but I wasn't aware of it because it didn't directly impact me. And that's the thing is trying to get people to understand that when we're talking about racism, we're talking about the institutionalization of racism. We're, we're not always trying to like call people out. We're really, a lot of times we're saying, I know that you don't know this, but I'm telling you this. So now what are we going to do to fix it? Um, so yeah, right. there's a lot more work to be done in that space for sure. Oof, you just make I'm like yes like yeah you you and Donna need to like be a pro- professors together co-professors of course oh no Don, Donna's got her thing on lock I'm, I'm gonna just sit back okay. on the side now listen I will teach a course but Donna I listen I would love to hear anything she ever has to say yes uh, no I mean just you're so brilliant I love it and I love everything oh, you have to say so and and maybe teaching is in your future, but we also do we do have to talk about how you founded your own company because you have all of this knowledge <laughs> and brilliance. Um, talk talk to me, talk to me about the formation of Gafford Communications first and foremost because I'm just like you're so like I'm just I admire you so much for doing <laughs> oh, that. Oh, Felicia, you're so kind. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I um, spoiler alert, I got fired from Disney. <laughs> um. Uh, right, which right. which is always it's so funny to me that I can say that now with such lightness in my heart because it was such a traumatic experience for me but mm-hmm. um, I don't think that anything ever happens um, without a purpose or without some kind of um, there's there's a lesson in everything right and so mm-hmm. um, the lesson for me was that I felt like for the longest time 
a lot of people have been suggesting that I go out on my own. And I was just like, nope, I have no interest in entrepreneurship. Like, <laughs> nope, I want someone else to be worried. I, I want my check in my direct deposit every two weeks. I want mm-hmm. someone else to have to worry about hiring security for this bill. I want somebody else to have to worry about office space. Like, I don't want to worry about any of that. Right. So for the longest, I just had this trepidation around entrepreneurship. And um, so after I got fired from Disney, <laughs> I took basically like a year and I, I mean, I was lucky enough to have some savings and, and I was looking for work for a while and I I just wasn't finding anything. And, and that was very frustrating because I've never not been able to find a job quickly, like never in my entire life. And uh the minute I decide I'm ready to move on from a job, I just, another one just always appears and it's always usually better than the last one. And that did not happen Mm. this time. It just cut, no matter how hard I beat on that door, I could not get any traction. And then finally, um, I had kind of assembled my council of, of advisors together in part because I was trying to really process the whole Disney thing. The Disney thing was really hard for me because again, I'm, I've always been a super, you know, a, 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 the star pupil. I've never not done well. I've never, I've never even been in danger of losing a job. Okay. Like ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the idea mm-hmm. that I was not only in danger, but that I actually got fired still is like mind boggling. So I really, yeah. it took a lot out of me. So anyway, so I had assembled this council of advisors and one of the things that came out of conversation was aside from you need to actually share with Disney what your trauma was like that came out of it It was like we know you've said it before but you need to be very specific you need to identify for them where they failed you and where they might fail future people because if you don't want this to happen to the next Kalila you need to you need to give them this information so I did that and I also wrote an article because I also believe accountability is important (laughs) so I wrote an article and I didn't go into all of the details of my experience but I went into enough to paint the picture so that it was clear what my experience in general had been so anyway the council of advisors that I was talking to were like they were like okay so and when are you going to start your business I was like, I'm sorry. Ooh. I was like, huh? <laughs> you were like, no, no, no. You need to go ahead and start your business because clearly you need to actually, you have a voice, you have something to say, you've had these experiences. Um, and also you're a great marketer and communicator. Why are you not going out? Why are you, why are you still looking for someone else to employ you? And I was like, uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> like, I'm good on that. Mm. And so what ended up happening was I finally acquiesced and was like fine I'll just file for an LLC and I went online and I filed the paperwork electronically I think on a Tuesday or Wednesday or maybe it was a Wednesday or a Thursday and I'm not kidding you on a Friday I got a phone call out of the blue um, from someone saying hey I need your help and it, <gasps> it ended up being my first client my it's still my biggest client I I love them and I love the work that they do and it just all came together and, and we, and I just hit the ground running and I haven't stopped since. So that was, I officially launched, um, Gafford in June of twin of last year, 2020. Of 2020. Yeah. Wow. I think the paperwork says like July 2nd or something. <laughs> well, and it's so exciting because like, obviously 2020 for many different reasons was a very like emotional roller coaster of a year and you were able to create during that time and put something out into the world and that's just like so exciting you know uh, what were what were some of the like you know once you were like oh I'm doing this you know what were some of the 
joys that you were feeling as you were you were creating this company? I think honestly, once I got out of my own head and realized that it wasn't as scared because I was always I was always scared of the administrative part of it, right? Like I was I was nervous mm-hmm. about invoices and taxes and insurance and all of those things that we convince ourselves that you have to have um, uh, that you need a, a a company's job in order to get. And I was like, I remember the revelation really like maybe a couple months a couple weeks into my my new company the revelation you know you can just go buy insurance you don't have to go through your company they, and it was like the revelation of that so that for me was a little joy like the the stress and the the anxiety over i don't know how to run a company like the anxiety when when it when when the little things started to come together like the revelation of hey insurance you can just buy it off the shelf just like literally go on blue cross blue yeah. Hills website and just like look like you can do that as an individual right thank you obamacare um and so, <laughs> so so that revelation was helpful but i think in terms of like the things that really get my juices going and that really that i get joyful about is one of my clients is um the national birth equity collaborative um, in Beck. And they are a, an organization that is focused on ending uh, the black maternal health rates in this country are terrible. Like black mm. women die at three to four times the rate of, of their white mm. counterparts and of all their counterparts. And there's no reason for it. And so to do that work with them on an ongoing basis, especially like in last year, I think many of us, there was this trigger inside that when, you know, with George Floyd's death and so many other things that happened last year, there was a sense of, I need to be doing something that has a lasting, meaningful impact. And not that the work that I do in the arts and entertainment space does not do that, because it certainly does. And I know we're going to talk about that aspect of my work as well. But working with clients like them, and also the work that I do in the EDI space of knowing that I am now fully on mission. I am fully in my purpose of being able to take all of the skill sets and all of the training that I've had over the years as a communicator and a marketer and to be able to Mm. use that for the cause, to to advance the cause and the discussion around Black maternal health, to be able to support and engage, you know, companies who now recognize, even if it's for the sake of like optics or even if it's for the sake of avoiding liability, but are saying we need some kind of EDI training. We need to understand where we're falling Mm. down, where we're failing our people. I think for me, that's where I get my joy in knowing that yeah, I have a company and yeah, my, you know, family's name is on the door and so to speak (laughs) or whatever, but Mm. it's more about knowing that I am doing work that I truly, truly believe in. And also that I believe will have an impact longer than I'm on this earth. Like, I think the work wow. that my clients do will last beyond my lifetime. And I think that's significant and important. Amen. Amen. <laughs> yes. I love it. Yeah. Yes. No, that's so great. I can see you snapping I wanna... your fingers. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm, I'm cheesing over here. You can't see, but I am. Um, and just really, I'm like, you're just giving me so much to chew on, like in my own personal life too. I'm like, thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> And, and I want to hear about um, Chief Disruptor Productions, too, because that that's newer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, quite yeah. literally just announced this week. Like, it's it's so funny. So 
I think the last time you and I talked, I was work. So I've been working with a group of friends who I've known since my days at Dillard, um, some fellow theater majors. We got together and we formed this um, independent produ- producing company, the Oaks Collective. Um, but even in that, in that, and we've done a couple of projects together and it's been great and well, but the intent was always that we would come together when we wanted to come together and work on things. But people have their own lives. Have, most of us are artists or arts administrators. So, um, so you know, people go off and they do their own things. And so I have had these, as someone who is always around creative types and you're a creative yourself, you know, you all, you got basically like this log, this backlog of all these things that come uh-huh. up, these ideas that pop up in the middle of the night or, you know, you'll, you'll be sitting across <laughs> the room from a friend and they'll say something. You're like, we should write a movie about that. Right. Like it's that. Right. <laughs> so I have this backlog of all of these creative ideas and I just was like am I gonna keep waiting for other people who I love and amazing collaborators but waiting for their schedules to be right waiting for you know us to be in agreement about things I was like they're just things that I just want to get out like to into the world yeah and I think in particular as as a black person who, who you know consumes art I'm always like I'm looking at things critically but also looking at them going we don't have anything else. We don't have any, like nobody has anything else. And that's not mm. to say there isn't amazing art being created, but I'm always like, I know we can do more. Like I see something like Lovecraft country or, you know, uh, pretty much anything that Jordan Peele puts his hands on, but you know, and, and Misha Gray, like, <laughs> and, and anything that is, it's a Ray touches or Ava DuVernay touches. And I'm looking at them and I'm jealous, like going, Ooh, yeah. I should have done that. Right. And so I, you know, spirit turned something on in me in the last year and was like, why aren't you? Like you're 40 mm. something now. Um, have a birthday next month. It was just like, you're 40 something now. Hey. <laughs> and so it was like, so are you going to keep waiting until, cause that's what happens. We keep going. Well, someday, well, someday, yeah. well, someday. And if you yeah. keep saying someday, then yeah, it will be someday. And so I didn't want to keep saying someday. So what I did was I started small. I literally just filed for my DBA because <laughs> my company, the, uh, um, Chief Disruptor Productions, is um, a, essentially a subsidiary. Um, it's it's a, com- a Gaffer Communications brand. And so I filed my DBA. I started there. And I still wasn't doing anything. I just started, like, you know, kind of muddling over, like, what I thought I wanted to do. And then finally, like, uh, after the new year, God was like, seriously? we're done. We've had enough time. Let's go. Let's go. Mm-hmm. So, so we, um, buckled down. Um, and what actually kicked it off was I had this, this thing in my spirit of doing a black beauty digital exhibit. And I was oh, like, it has to be, it has to live somewhere. And so that's how cheap disruptor productions came about. And so we're going to, we're going out next month. We're launching our case food for thought um, podcast series, which is literally, um, it is a mix of everything that you love about black culture, music, um, mixed with gender and race discussions around gender and race issues, um, art, all of the things that I love, all the things that get my juices flowing. Cause I love art. I love politics. I love um, talking to men and women and, and folks about their relationships. And so it's all of that mixed into one, but through the lens of like black people, because so often when we have these conversations and discussions, it's black people aren't at the front of them. We're an afterthought if we're thought of at all. And so yeah. I wanted to have this conversation, but I also wanted it to be 
fun, right? I want it to be interesting and entertaining. So it's case food for thought. And the hook is, of course, that my guests and I will have dinner together and we'll discuss yes. something interesting, fun, cool over over food. So it'll be case food for thought. So that's coming out in March 2021. And then I'm super excited about um, our Black Beauty digital exhibit. So I my young, my oldest niece, my sister's oldest daughter, um, Naya, like so many young girls, she's 20, turning 21 in May. She's, she has this thing about these big eyelashes, right? These big eyelashes. And I remember going, <laughs> Oh honey, why are your eyelashes so big? Like why do they have to be so big? And, <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, she, she made me second. She made me rethink my framing of that because I started looking at like old school, like Diana Ross and Diane, mm. Diane Summer and like, like all, all the, I mean, Diane Summer, Donna Summer and all of these like icons and seeing them and seeing how beautiful and amazing they were. And then I had pause, like I felt a conviction in my spirit is the way the old people would say it. I felt the conviction <laughs> in my spirit because... I thought about like, you know, when you see the, the posters of like Rosie the Riveter and she's got her hair tied up in a, like a red and white bandana and she looks so, yeah. she looks so cool. And I was like, you know, if a black woman put that same outfit on, we would be compared to Angemon. Like a black mm. woman with a red and white bandana, like that's immediately what we think of. And then I started mm-hmm. thinking about going back to the eyelashes, started thinking about how like when Twiggy had her eyelashes and when Cher wore her eye, big oh. eyelashes, they were glamorous and they were, oh my gosh, she's so sophisticated. And But we're now these young black girls who are literally wearing the same style eye, you know, eyelashes. Now when they wear, you know, I, I notice in comments on, you know, on, on in Facebook and Instagram, mostly from white people, but also from us saying, oh my God, it's too much. This is way too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it, it clicks something for me that black women, first of all, women in general are, are held to ridiculous standards of beauty. They just, all of us are, but black right. women have the added pressure and added layer of racism in the sense that like mm-hmm. the things that other women can do and wear and the way in which they present themselves you know, Britney Spears can dance on MTV Music Awards with a snake and it's like, ooh, it's seductive and it's sexy. Right. When, when Beyonce does it, she's a slut, right? Like, like yeah. there, it's that. So I wanted to do yeah. an exhibit that explores that um the frustrations around that around our hair the politics of our hair around our makeup choices around our fashion like how how we what our experiences have been and this will be like first person testimonies through video audio clips um but also to show like the evolution of our beauty like how we continue in spite of you know being told that what we're doing is not accepted in the same way that our non-black um peers are that we still continue you know to slay (laughs) in spite of it all right so that exhibit is coming Mm -hmm. um in late spring early summer so i'm super excited about that one for sure and then later in the year we'll do our black boy joy um series which is i'm not even gonna tease that out other than to say it's gonna (laughs) it's gonna be something for the brothers and it'll be awesome Yes, you got me hooked. I'm excited to celebrate <laughs> that resilience and all of the joy. Yes. Uh, <laughs> ah, it's so exciting. I'm so excited for you. Um, thank you. Thank you. As I've been gushing the whole time, like, I just <laughs> think you're great. Thank you, Felicia. <laughs> ditto, ditto, ditto. Yes. And so um, 
for our, our you know last two questions wrap up the podcast kind of in, in the same vein but like you know if there was if there's a piece of black art that you could recommend that that could be associated with Gafford and, and Chief Disruptor and Oaks Collective or not um, whether it's like a tv show a book a film you know music album for our listeners to to take in what would it be absolutely when I saw this question earlier I was like oh my god it's like asking a a, a woman who I her know. favorite children are I mean which one of her kids <laughs> is her favorite um I I will say so two things I mean I'm gonna break the rules of course because I'm a disruptor so that's what we do yeah um as a general rule I would say in terms of uh black art anything where Nina Simone is singing or anything that Toni Morris has written is always good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As of late, what has me really excited and really jazzed is, and I haven't, so two things. I'm, I'm going to tell you what has me really jazz. Um, Jason Moran just uh, Jason Moran is a jazz pianist and he's composed for different um, films with Ava DuVernay. He, he he was a composer for I think Thirteenth and also for Selma. And he composed the music for the Apollos Between the World and Me production that they did. And he's just a lovely human being. But he released this album last month. Um, that is called, and I want to make sure that I say it right. I wrote it down somewhere. Um, I'll find it <laughs> in a minute. But anyway, he released this brand new, oh, the sound will tell you. And what's so cool about it is he released it right after the Capitol riots. But the album itself, every song ties back to a Toni Morrison, like quote or phrase from her books. Oh. And so Toni Morrison, along with Jane Austen, is my favorite author, right? So, um, and also you should know so much about me, by knowing that those two people are my favorite authors. But so him writing this album or releasing this album, uh, you know, that is guided by her spirit and energy is just so dope to me. But also he, so the whole album is great, but this song, the first song I think on the track is called Follow the Light. And my goodness, that brother does something with the piano that seems unhuman. Like I can't even right. mock what he did. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. Just do yourself a favor. I don't care if you even like jazz, like just go listen to it. It's really great. And then of course I'm on pins and needles to see if um, Judas and the black Messiah is starring in my head, my husband, Daniel Kaluuya and um, <laughs> Lakeith Stanfield. And I'm sure it's going to live up to the hype. I have every expectation that it will, but I am waiting with bated breath to watch it. This, I actually thought it came out last weekend. My best friend and I were all set to go watch it. And he, and I was like, you're going to be really upset. It doesn't come oh, out until no. next week. He's like, no, no. So I'm, I have, I'm, I, it's appointment TV for me. So yeah, I love it. Oh, yeah. those are great yeah. recommendations. Uh, I love it. I love it. Um, and then similarly, please feel free to disrupt. Um, if you could give. <laughs> Some love, some shout outs to fellow black artists. Who would it be? Absolutely. You know who I am really digging right now? And I'm actually going to flip the script because I know that this is primarily performing arts, but um, or primarily performing arts focus. But this week on uh, Chief Disruptor, um, on our Facebook page, we've been spotlighting black visual artists uh, because I think mm. so often there's not a lot of attention paid. I mean, more and more there is um, as of late, but um so HBO has a documentary that's airing HBO Max on HBO Max tonight that's about Black art. And so I'm going to shout out Paul Lewin. Paul Lewin has created some dope. Can I curse on your podcast? Do you allow me? Yeah, please. Because I, I have to say it this way. He has created some dope ass shit on his, like, his yes. imagery is, like, phenomenal. His name is Paul Lewin. His, it's spelled P-A-U-L-L-E-W-I-N. I actually have 
um, purchased like three prints for him. I purchased three for myself. I bought one for my dad for his birthday. Like his, his art artistry is just so beautiful. And what I love about it is it feels like music. It feels like theater. Like Mm. it feels like dance. It's all of, it takes all of our, it's very Afrofuturistic. It's very earthy. It's very, you, you look at it and you're like, that's black people. Like when I see it, I look at it and feel that way. So Paul Lewin, he has a website, paulluinart.com. He has an Instagram page. Go follow that brother. Hype him up. He's awesome. Tell him Chief Disruptor Productions sent you because we love him. (laughs) Definitely. Okay. And he's out of Oakland. Actually, he's out of your neck. He's out of Oakland, California. Um, So yeah, he's awesome. Oh, okay. Oakland. Yes. (laughs) No, I love it. And yeah, the visual arts, you know, it's, it's so true. Like, I mean, I, I don't have I don't know a lot about the world but it is true like I feel like there can also be more intersections than I even realize you know between the two so I'm so glad you brought that and up. that's what the black beauty digital exhibit is about too that's that's why I mentioned him because there is so much overlap and I think so often um within our community we've been afraid to venture into visual arts because it feels like it's for white people honestly and mm. not. like it, it's 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 just like everything else we touch it's like we bring our dopeness to everything so I definitely think there's a there's something there <laughs> you are I, I seriously don't know how an hour has just flown by <laughs> because I'm like yes and I could listen to you for eight Aww. more like you are just, you're such a great storyteller and you're so great at what you do. Um, uh, well, ditto. Listen, who's talking? <laughs> like mm. Felicia, no. I, I, I have to say, because I will not get off this podcast, this recording without gushing over you and saying you are dope. You are amazing. What you are do, what you have done and every all throughout all of your platforms is amazing. I appreciate how accessible you are, how accessible you make, you know, the folks who come onto your podcast, the folks that you interviewed through your, your full-time gig, like all of that. So thank you you for honestly for repping us like you do it so well I so appreciate it and I appreciate the opportunity to come in and I'm always happy to come and chat with you because you're the bomb (laughs) thank thank you that means a lot Um, I really appreciate that definitely um it's it is no it is like it's truly my my joy and my honor is to like you know get get to talk with everyone and just just like document our stories you know what I'm saying like it's just so important um So I appreciate the kind words and y'all, I mean, the, the listeners, I hope you were like taking notes. <laughs> like I was definitely taking notes throughout all of this. And um, I'm, I'm so glad we got to learn about your journey. And this is only, this is only the beginning because again, we could do eight more of these and it's still Oh God, yes. Enough. Let's but, do more. Um, <laughs> and you definitely yeah. have to come on Case Food for Thought for sure. Yes, <laughs> We can talk all the theater nerdy things that, it, that will have everyone else rolling their eyes going, oh my God, this theater stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> But they're gonna have to listen yes, yes. Uh, and if folks want to follow you like to keep up with all of these exciting projects where should they do that at yeah the best place is um either on facebook or instagram you can find us at chief disruptor productions all one word um you can also follow us um, on those same platforms at gafford comms um and of course you can check out our website gaffordcommunications.com and you can find out what we're doing and especially if you're interested particularly like in the black beauty digital exhibit because we will be soliciting we will solicit um testimonials from folks so please go to that website as well to find out more information about how you can participate in that project so I love it. I love you. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. (laughs) Until next time, y'all.